Welcome to this hour of Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. Buzz Eisenberg is away. And as our listeners know, February is Black History Month. And we have devoted appropriate amount of time and focus on Black History and Black History Month as it is honored and celebrated and observed here in the Valley. We have spent a lot of time speaking about reparations. And I am so pleased that today we have with us Professor Malcolm Sen, who is a professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He is co-chair of the Sustainability Strategy Working Group. We're going to talk about that in a moment. And in particular, he, the reason we want you to hear from him today is that he will be the moderator of the Black History Month keynote address on February 29th by Catherine Coleman Flowers. So, Professor Sen, let's start there. You are going to be the moderator. You have a superstar uh, keynote speaker. For those of our listeners who say, not sure, I think I've heard the name, tell us who she is and why it is such a coup that she is speaking at the University of Massachusetts. Again, this will be Thursday at 5.30 at the Student Union Ballroom. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, Well, Catherine Coleman Flowers is the founder of the Center for Rural Enterprise and Environmental Justice. Uh, Since 2008, she has been the Rural Development Manager at the Race and Poverty Initiative of the Equal Justice Initiative. But most importantly, she's the Vice Chair of the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council. Um, And the reason why she has all of these incredible accolades right now is really her life's work, which has been to shed light on... um, Conditions in Alabama, especially in Lowndes County, uh, where the poverty rate is very, very high, almost double that of the national average. Um, But where actually, especially, it's almost like the ground zero of uh, inadequate infrastructure when it comes to sewage disposal. It's hard to believe that in 21st century America, as Catherine Coleman Flower says in her book, that you know, you kind of witness a neighbor, uh, a county where you actually do not have a working sewage system. Essentially, people are straight piping sewage from their homes straight into their backyards. Now, this particular form of lack of infrastructure, uh, she traces back all the way to uh, some structural problems, including the criminalization of poverty. Um, So what becomes an environmental issue actually then also has social, cultural implications as well. And her justice work has been so powerful because she not only elevated this issue to the national level, but actually brought it all the way to the United Nations level too. Um, And I think, you know, she is an incredible, indomitable spirit um, that actually... Um, also maybe provide some hope in, in, in the face of various kinds of, you know, climate anxiety and environmental anxiety. Um, her life's work actually reveals what can happen when people take action. So we're it, delighted to have her here. Yeah. Yes, it, 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 I, I think it's really a, a remarkable achievement that she is coming to UMass Amherst again. Uh, she will be, Catherine Coleman Flowers will be speaking at the Student Union Ballroom at uh, UMass 5.30 Thursday tomorrow. I, I want to go back. You've said so much in the first few minutes I'd like to unpack. She worked with the 
with EJI, the Equal Justice Initiative, mm -hmm. in Montgomery, Alabama, which was founded by Brian Stevenson, who Buzz and I worked with on death penalty case, really? a wow. successful death penalty case, um, and in defense. And it is, to me, fascinating that EJI has had such a large impact and has now cast such a wide net in terms of social justice issues. I don't know if you want to spend one more minute on that and EJI and what uh, uh, Catherine Coleman Flowers' uh, involvement with EJI was. Yeah, I mean, I think what's fascinating actually is that it is not simply EJI, although it's very much a part of her, of her life's trajectory, but really her front porch, as she says, as a child, um, her family home's front porch became a hub of various activists coming and speaking about questions of justice from all around the world. And I think she grew up in an atmosphere where questions of fairness and justice were absolutely central to her education, um, which was a natural segue into the kind of work that she ends up doing at EJI. We were talking just before we went on the air about an editorial that is in today's Springfield Republican in which the newspaper makes the point that the infrastructure of our local communities, Springfield and Holyoke, is essentially racist, that the highways were built to, in, during the uh, Eisenhower administration when all of these highways were built and the national uh, system of highways was constructed, to essentially uh, perpetuate segregation, to isolate communities of color and poor people. And that it's now something that we have to deal with because those communities continue to suffer the racism because it is literally built into the structure of their lives, of their communities, of the cities where they live. I'm wondering if you could help elucidate that for us. Yes, maybe in a couple of different ways. Um, infrastructures really are mirrors of societal ideologies and political ideologies, right? Governments decide where to put the money in. And it is also a very central idea in Catherine Coleman Flowers's, uh, Flowers's book. What essentially we have with infrastructure is the ability to participate in civic life or not, right? Um, or to be able to participate in this great kind of experiment of American democracy or not. And the history of racism teaches us that it is really a history of marginalization in very real ways to be actually cut off from the infrastructure of a sewage system, for example, uh, mirrors the kind of wider network, right, of, of lack of um, connectivity in so many different spheres. Um, it is not simply a matter for rural, rural Alabama. It is actually also a matter for uh, unincorporated Latinx communities, for example, or people in Alaska or Hawaii, and as you say, Springfield um, as, as, as well. We think about questions of environmental and climate justice actually in ways that make it seem that there are technological solutions to everything, and indeed there are. But actually what we also need to address is a radical culture change when we think about questions of, of racism, uh, and we also need to kind of think about questions of racism in relation to environmental issues, I would say. I think that we often, and I, I don't mean to generalize too much on this, but I think that political activists, particularly progressives, tend to conceptualize environmental issues and racial justice issues as being separate. And what 
Catherine Coleman Flowers makes clear in her book, Waste is the title, One Woman's Fight Against America's Dirty Secret, is that these two issues are intrinsically, inherently bound up together. And I'm wondering if you could comment on that for us, please, Professor Malcolm Sen. Yes, of course. Uh, Very happy to. So our inherited languages, right, that we use of sustainability, environmentalism, etc., make it kind of seem like a middle class, almost like a white issue, right? Uh, we, we change our food habits to eating muesli or, or you know, forego of this particular kind of food or not. But actually... We, we, we recycle things and feel very virtuous about it. Exactly. And, and even within that, there is this fiction that we are indeed recycling, right? Uh, you know, in, in fact, we are being fed a story that recyclables are being recycled. If you were to kind of look at the history of recycling in this particular country, or indeed the largest democracy in the world, India, there'd be other questions being raised. So climate change is is a scientific issue. It is an economic issue. It is a political issue. But it does not, it is not a monodisciplinary issue. Uh, We think of these problems as with scientific, economic, and political solutions. And I think that is a dangerous perception. We forget artists, writers, historians, cultural and literary scholars at great peril. And I think what um, her work shows, Catherine Coleman Flowers' work shows, is that environmental justice is actually the flip side of any meaningful action on climate change. Oh, tell us more about that, if you would. I'd just like to hear you expound another minute or two. That's just such a crucial point. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, the journalist Naomi Klein very famously said in her in her excellent book, This Changes Everything, that if you were to really address climate change in any meaningful fashion, you would actually end up addressing most societal ills, racial, gendered, health-related, what have you. We can also think about this in terms of international politics and, and look at our United Nations development goals. If you were to actually address one of those issues, the number one is no poverty or eradicate poverty. If you were to just address that issue, in essence, you would actually address also the other lists of things that are kind of mentioned in, in, in that particular catalog. There is no way to actually address questions of poverty without also addressing questions of access to health care, without actually addressing questions of access to education. The word access again reiterates the importance of infrastructure and pathways, not only towards cultural mobility, but actually also re-envisioning what progress means, right? And I think we are at this crucial juncture where even what we think of as progress might have to be rethought, because in many ways the climate emergency is indeed an emergency. I, I want to spend some more time on that, But before we get to the emergency and return back to speaking about Catherine Coleman Flowers again, who will be speaking Thursday, tomorrow, 530, the Student Union Ballroom at UMass, free and open to the public, of course. I'd like to ask you about sustainability education. You are an interdisciplinary scholar at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And there are, in fact, uh, efforts being made at UMass to address this question of the relationship between race and justice and sustainability. And I'm wondering if you could tell us more about that because there is at least a 
sliver of light in this somewhat gloomy picture. Oh, very gloomy picture. Yeah, and sorry, I don't mean to kind of, you know, preach the doomsday scenario, but in essence, really, that is what scientists are telling us, right? They're really a step away. The only other thing left for them to do is actually stand at the street corner with a placard around their neck saying that the end is nigh. So I think education is a key to sustainability because we are literally producing citizens and the workforce in UMass. And what we are noticing through this work that we are doing in the Sustainability Strategy Working Group, that scholars and students from across the spectrum, from across the campus, the sciences, the social sciences, the the humanities, are actually beginning to realize that our education system is not really climate resilient. By that, I mean we are not teaching sustainability in a way that is holistic to our student population. Oftentimes, sustainability is thought of as a a technological or scientific issue. And indeed, as I said, it is. We need to shore up our coastal resilience. But at the same time, we also want to ensure drinking water in the taps of our Alabama households. All of these bring up, therefore, questions of of justice and society and culture as central to the idea of climate. Could you tell us a bit more about what the Sustainability Strategy Working Group at UMass is? You're the co-chair. What does it it do? Yes. So, well, um, we were formed a couple of years ago at the behest of the provost at the time, and uh, I work very closely uh, with Rob DeConto, who is in the, the director of the School of Earth and Sustainability, and Pat Miller, who is a <coughs> professor in uh, public policy, and also with Darcy Moresca, who's, an, who's another manager at the, in the School of Earth and Sustainability. And what we've tried to do is actually produce a culture of collectivism to address this very interdisciplinary nature of the climate and sustainability questions. We have basically brought people together, uh, provided forums where we in many ways uplift each other's work and see where there is a conversation to be had. So I've had personally very productive conversations, let's say, with chemists who are are working at particular solutions, right? Um, I've had very, very productive conversations with scientists who work on questions of energy, because these are indeed in many ways, even I teach English literature, which is kind of my subject. The history of literature really can be read against the history of energy regimes, right? Um, in, In essence, like the oil regime radically changes the way things happen in textbooks in many ways. So, so those textbooks then become almost like an archive of environmental history. Um, but texts are, of course, not only looking backwards, they're actually often very prophetic. So it becomes interesting then to kind of see the predictions of climate scientists and the prophecies of literary texts. And these are very fruitful, energetic discussions that actually provide, I would say, our student body with a very well-rounded sense of the question of climate, environment, sustainability. As you've already identified, we often think of these things in very, very separate ways. There is light at the end of the tunnel, and I principally see it in the faces of my students because they themselves recognize the need to actually think beyond the politicization or the scientization 
or the sanitization of, of the climate crisis. They are not happy just to kind of change their light bulbs. They are not happy just to say, okay, I'm going to just bike to work. Talking about infrastructure, well, one of the great things that this particular country can do is actually make pathways navigable by humans. In essence, we only have paths in this country which are navigable by metal boxes, right? If you are really thinking about addressing questions of sustainability and infrastructure, uh, one of the things that we probably should be looking at is actually something like transport, for example, as, as well. Um, so I think students are asking these questions, and these questions are not monodisciplinary questions. These are questions that ask for a city planner, ask for a scientific predictor, ask for a visionary. We are speaking with UMass Professor Malcolm Sen. He is a professor in the Department of English, although, as you can tell from this conversation, he is a multidisciplinary professor indeed. He is the founder and director of the Environmental Humanities Specialization, and he is the co-chair of the Sustainability Strategy Working Group. We'll come back and hear more about UMass students and what they can and will do to fight injustice and environmental degradation right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with University of Massachusetts Professor Malcolm Sen, who is the co-chair of the Sustainability Strategy Working Group. We have been talking about the talk that will be given tomorrow evening, of course, with a Q&A that Professor Sen will be moderating. This is part of UMass's Black History Month. This is the keynote address by Catherine Coleman Flowers, 5.30 Thursday tomorrow at the Student Union Ballroom, free and open to the public, of course. While we were off air, Professor Sen, we were talking about the overused but accurate, accurately described existential question of whether there is hope and the, the confluence, the coming together of various disciplines, which you do in your work, um, seems to me critical. On the other hand, as Dan pointed out in our conversation, it seems to be very late in the game. Racism, which permeates this country and this culture, uh, and environmental degradation, which is omnipresent, go hand in glove. And sustainability and anti-racism work are part and parcel of what we need to do together. But the question is, and I don't mean to be too general about it, but I would appreciate your perspective, is really, is there hope? Well, thank you for, for, for asking me that question. It is something that is ever-present, especially in, in a young student body. Well, the good news is that entire cultures have faced possible extinctions and have survived. Uh, we can think of actually the enslaved people who were literally being written off the face of the earth. 
and indeed black culture thrives today. We can think also of indigenous communities, not just in America, but actually all around the world, and they are still in many ways thriving. It is a struggle. Thriving but threatened. Yes, threatened. So we might be able to think about climate change as not simply an environmental problem, but actually also demanding a culture change. And this is where I actually find, find hope. I think the 20th century was defined by an ethos of competition. I think the 21st century can be thrivable if it is driven by an ethic of collaboration. And I think that is happening as an example. You know, a new mass disciplines are beginning to kind of collaborate. Yes, you know, uh, quite late in the day, but actually it is in, in, the, in, in, in many ways scientists tell us it is not too late. Act now because then you actually defer the possible extinction event, so to speak. So I think, you know, we might actually think about climate change as an incredible opportunity to actually move away from the determinants of everyday life, of things like progress, of things that determined what, what the good life was. In the 20th century, that was the product oil. I feel in the 21st century, the products are going to be, so to speak, more elemental. It'll be questions of air and water and earth and fire. Um, and I think, you know, it is oftentimes the poets and the writers and the artists who have seen where we are headed way before we can actually see it. You all need to kind of do is like look at Octavia Butler's book, uh, the Parable of the Sower, which actually is based on 2024 and in many ways predicts our mantra in, uh, in some parts of this country, make America great again. She in many ways predicts the trajectory that the apocalypse kind of leads to. And I think that is what we kind of almost need to do is to kind of listen to our artists. Well, one resource that is going to be the fight of the 21st century is water. We are using freshwater reserves in this country. We're using them up uh, at an extraordinary rate. The fight among uh, colonial nations, and I include China in that, in Africa is who's going to control the water. And we need, as a, as a species, to be able to survive clean water. And it's not at all uh, obvious to me that... Uh, uh, the nations of the world, China, Russia, the United States, the, the large industrial powers are in any way on board with what you're teaching at UMass about the need for cooperation. So I'm not trying to return to a doomsday scenario, but I'd like to know how you address those, those conflicting forces. Yeah. Um, a political philosopher, Frederick Jemson, said, we are really good at imagining the end of the world but we are not very good at imagining the end of capitalism. <laughs> uh, when, when you mention America and China, we are actually literally talking about privatization of water. We are talking about specific companies leasing right, uh, particular parts of other countries. We've been doing it for a long time. This idea of the political nation as being separate from the market is actually completely illogical. Uh, we literally, a, a country gives up its sovereignty over a pipeline. The pipeline and the earth underneath it is actually owned by corporations. So, yes, so that is kind of what I mean by a radical change in the culture, which is to say, 
perhaps what Al Gore might have said, right, to Catherine Coleman Flowers, uh, as he does in, in this book, we are told we have to change capitalism. But as Flowers herself actually notes, perhaps capitalism is one of those things we need to kind of rethink completely. And to do that, I think we go back to indigenous sources. The future increasingly, to my mind, becomes thrivable at local levels. It becomes very hard, actually, to imagine how will I save the planet? But it becomes much easier to say, I want to make sure that my community has access to water, which is, you know, sustainable. And I think that is a fight that is going to be you know, spreading more and more across the world and in different communities. Well, in that regard, on Thursday, tomorrow, you will be the moderator, uh, Professor Malcolm Sen. You will be the moderator of the talk uh, for Black History Month, the keynote address by Catherine Coleman Flowers. What do you hope the, the audience will bring home from that event? Well, I am especially hoping that Flowers' talk will actually give our student body ways and means and ideologies to follow and emulate in their own lives as they engage with questions of environmental injustice, as they engage with climate anxiety. Uh, that's, that is a very dominant kind of note of the student population, perhaps all around the world, of this constant underlying anxiety. And a lot of Psychologists and psychiatrists are linking it to what they're calling, you know, climate anxiety, solastalgia, right? A kind of a feeling that something is not quite right. I'm not quite at home. Flowers' life and work gives us a beacon of hope. It is actually a template that we can emulate in our daily lives. Um, and I think that is why local activism is perhaps key to thinking about much larger global problems. We have been speaking with UMass Professor Malcolm Sen, who will moderate UMass Amherst Black History Month keynote address tomorrow, February 9th, by Catherine Coleman Flowers, whose book is titled, recent book is titled, Waste, One Woman's Fight Against America's Dirty Secret. Again, Professor Malcolm Sen will be the moderator, 5.30, the Student Union Ballroom, Thursday at UMass. Thank you, Professor, so much for being with us, and thank you for doing all your work. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. That my emotions have to take me on I heard a newborn baby cry Through the This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.